recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And as we reach the point where we're at today in our study of the Sermon on the Mount, we're faced with a question. And it's a very important question. And it's not the kind of question that you can evade. It's not the kind of question that you can run away from. And it's not the kind of question that you can ignore and get away with ignoring it. And what is that question? It is the question of what will you do with the words that you've heard? Five months we've spent going in detail through all that Jesus says in this passage. And it boils down to these last few verses where Jesus challenges every single one of you to think about this. How will you respond? And in this passage, we see that there's basically only two ways that it's possible to respond to what Jesus says. You can respond like the wise person and hear the word of God and act upon it. Or you can respond as the foolish person and hear it like everybody else has heard it and then walk away and say, I'm not going to do that. So Jesus is challenging us to a response today. One of the reasons why it's hard for us to even consider this subject is because we live in a world right now where we are bombarded with choices. We're bombarded with things that we're supposed to make a decision about. And I think the entire um, enterprise of advertising is to try and lure us into some kind of a response. For example, if you... Uh, go on the internet or if you watch the TV, advertising is telling us what food to eat. Um, it's telling us what gum we should chew. It's telling us what car we should drive. It's telling us what vacation to take. And it's telling us what clothes to buy. Every single thing about our daily life, there's something where someone is saying, well, here's your choice and you should do this rather than that. But here's the point. Can you ignore the advertising? Yeah. What happens to you if you don't eat that Whopper? What happens to you if you don't buy that Lexus? What happens to you if you decide that you'd rather wear board shorts rather than a Speedo? You have that option to choose or you have the option to ignore and it really doesn't make a difference now, does it? But when you come to the words of Christ, here we have Jesus saying that there's no way to fail to respond. And there's two kinds of responses. So notice the first response. He says, it's the response of those who hear his words and you act upon them. Any of you who are parents or if you're kids, you've been in the situation, you've been on one side of the equation where let's say if you're the parent, you've told your kids something to do and they hear you, but do they always obey? No, they sometimes hear and ignore. I remember my mom would say, now don't call me this, okay? I'm going to give you my nickname that my mother called me. She'd say, Timmy, it's time for dinner. And she'd say it once, but I was practicing trumpet and I wanted to ignore my mom. And then I'd hear the second time, Timmy, it's dinner time. And I'd keep on practicing. I'd hear the third time, Timmy. And so my point is, is that my mom would often call out and I, as the disobedient child that I was, uh, decided that I was not going to hear and act upon the words of my mom. And some of you kids are like that. Your parents call out and tell you, please clean your room and you don't do it. Please get off the cell phone, get off the Internet and you ignore them. 
I have a friend who lives in California, and he has three kids, and one of his kids is a teenager in 10th grade. So he told his, his 10th grader, he said, now, Logan, I don't want you on your tablet computer when it's time to go to bed. You've got to turn it off, and I don't even want you to take it in the room with you. But Logan heard his dad, and he didn't obey, and instead he took his tablet into the room with him, and problem with that was he shares the room with his brother. And little brothers are little brothers. And little brothers like to catch their big brothers doing things when what their big brothers are doing is not what they're supposed to do. So Logan heard his dad, don't take the tablet into the bedroom at all, and don't be on the tablet when it's at bedtime. But Logan did not act upon it. So then Stephen comes and tells dad what Logan is doing. And what does dad do? He takes Logan's tablet and he breaks it on his knee in front of him. Yeah, what? That's what I said. I said, what? I said, was now that was a real mature response, wasn't it? Um, And he's like, no, he said, I had to make a statement because Logan was repeatedly not listening to me. Well, there are people who hear the word of Christ and they don't listen. But the first example that Christ gives to us in this passage is not the negative one. It's not the person who hears and doesn't act and doesn't obey. The first example we hear is positive. And I like that. So let's look at it. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. Isn't this an amazing example for the last few months of of our history in America? We've had three major hurricanes. Um, The first one's Harvey. The second one was Irma. And the third one was Maria. And I think in the middle of that, we had a Jose, but he didn't do as much. So when they name, when they name the hurricanes, I don't know if you know this, they pick a male first, female second, male first, female second. And they do that to try and um, bring equality even to the hurricanes. But um, we experienced Harvey, Irma, and Maria. And we've seen in islands in the Caribbean and even in Florida, especially in the Keys, and, and we saw it in Houston, Houston had more water than other things, but what we saw was, in many of the places, the winds came and completely devastated 97% of the homes on some of the islands in the Caribbean. And what I was interested in, although I've been very interested in um, our response to how we're helping the people who've gone through the hurricanes, one of the things I've been interested in, because I grew up in Florida, and I was always deathly afraid of one of those kind of killer hurricanes, I was deathly afraid that our house, that was right upon, that was right on the Indian River, was going to go down with the flood or was going to um, be destroyed by the wind. My concern in all the hurricanes was this, which structures remained? Where were the people safe? Where did the walls not fall down? Where did the roofs stay on the buildings? And it was interesting. One of the things that I saw as I went to, to the pictures and took a look at everything, I saw that the, the places that were able to withstand the hurricane were usually not right next to the shore. That was the first thing. If they were right by the beach, they were usually um, knocked over by the flood or the winds were too great. And so if their foundation was in the right place, they had a better chance 
of surviving it. And that's the point Jesus is making. He's talking about the foundation. And when the rains come, the floods come, the winds blow, and they burst against the house, the houses that are built upon the foundation, they're built in the right place. They are the houses that remain. And the right place in this point is Jesus Christ, the foundation. So Christ is challenging us to build our lives on that foundation. But here's the problem. When we come to a passage like this, people say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Jesus is talking about hearing his words and acting upon them. He's talking about obedience. He's bringing to our attention that everything that he said wasn't for the purpose of our filling our head with facts and then walking away and then thinking we don't have to do it. Now, how many of you have actually been looking at the Sermon on the Mount and challenging yourself to actually do it? Read through the Sermon on the Mount until you get to just one of the commands and then do it. And if you do it, not only will your life change, but the lives of people around you will change when you love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, and do some of the amazingly radical things that Jesus says that we ought to do. But the problem we have is, is a lot of people say that there is no place for obedience in the life of a Christian. Aren't we saved by grace through faith so it doesn't matter what we do? And one of the biggest objections to Christ's words in this passage is, is that if you do what Jesus says, then you're doing it out of your own strength and that's works righteousness and that goes against what the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 when it says that we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works. And the second objection that people have to doing what Christ says in this passage is, is they say, well, okay, I hear what he says, but it's impossible. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if there's any passage of scripture that ought to lead you to the conclusion that the Christian life is impossible, it's this passage. How many of you love your enemies? How many of you not only flee adultery, but flee lust? How many of you not only don't murder people, but you also don't get angry with people when you have a conflict with them or when you disagree with them. So the point I'm trying to make is if there is any passage in the Bible that causes us to feel like it's impossible to live the Christian life, it's this passage. So how on earth can Jesus say to us that we can be the wise ones who hear what he says, do what he says, and then build our lives on the solid foundation. How is that even possible? And I think the problem is, is that we have missed a lot of what the Bible says. The Bible says, yes, our salvation is not of our own works, but it also says in Ephesians 2, not only verses 8 and 9, but also verse 10, that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God planned beforehand that we should walk in them. So the problem is not that Christian that the Christian life doesn't involve works. The question is, what kind of works? Is it the works that you do out of your own strength to try and earn your favor in the sight of God? Or is it the works that you do because by faith you turn and trust in Christ and rely upon Him and His power and find that you can do amazing, incredible, fabulous things that you couldn't do before because you're looking at Him rather than looking internally inside at yourself. So the first objection that people have is that you don't need to obey because it's works righteousness. And that's ridiculous. 
The second objection is that it's impossible to live the Christian life. But Paul, the one who wrote 11 11, uh, books of the New Testament, doesn't say that the Christian life is impossible. In fact, he says this. He says the exact same thing that Christ says in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember how Jesus comes and he says, I did not come to destroy, to abolish the law of God. I came to fulfill it. And then he challenges us to live it in a way that goes beyond the narrow interpretation of the religious legalists of the day, the Pharisees. So Paul says to us in Romans chapter 3, verse 31, that we don't nullify the law through faith. He says, on the contrary, we establish the law. So how do we do that? Romans 8, he tells us, Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law, capital L, Old Testament law, could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So what Paul is saying here is, is that the whole purpose of Christ coming into the world is not simply forgiveness. We don't understand the gospel when we focus too much on forgiveness. Forgiveness is important, but it's the beginning of the blessings of the gospel. He says Christ came to condemn the power of sin in your human body. So that the righteous requirement of God's law might be fulfilled in you when you learn how to walk according to the Holy Spirit of God by faith rather than by works. So the point I'm trying to make is that the whole New Testament is about how we should live as Christians. And we shouldn't live out of our own strength, turning to ourselves and finding that our strength is not enough or thinking that our strength is enough and then boasting about it. No, that's not the way to live the Christian life. The way to live the Christian life is to look at Christ and to see that his death is your death and his resurrection is your resurrection. So faith means turning to the risen Christ and say, I believe, Jesus, that you came out of the tomb. And so I believe that I can live above sin as the controlling principle of my life. People celebrate Easter all the time and they celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And it has absolutely nothing to do with their daily lives. Well, brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has everything to do with your daily life and has everything to do with your capacity to obey Christ's words in this sermon. Because the resurrection of Christ means that we have the power by faith to live the new life. So there are some who want to object um, and and those objections are wrong. But there's other problems that we encounter when we come to this whole issue of Christian obedience and doing what Christ says. And one of the other problems that we encounter, and I'm thinking now historically in the whole life of the church, one of the problems we encounter is the problem of Christian perfection. Jesus speaks about obedience, but he doesn't speak about perfection, which is why now pay attention, which is why in The prayer we just prayed, we pray for one thing in relationship to our sin. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those, or forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses 
as we forgive those who trespass against us. So why is it that people who are already forgiven are praying that God would forgive their sins and that we would forgive the sins of others against us? Well, the reason is, is in our own life and in our own experience, although we are learning to obey the Lord and and in the process of Christian growth, we are growing to be more like Jesus. We're not perfect. And so one of the problems that people have is, is if they think if you cannot be perfect, then obedience is not possible or we shouldn't even think about it or it's not necessary at all. In the history of the church, there have been uh, Christians who felt like when you become a Christian, you become perfect, perfectly sanctified. Um, you, you never sin again. I've known people who have believed that teaching and they usually end up depressed or um, worse, suicidal, because what happens is, is there comes a time where you realize that even though you think that you should be perfect, you're not perfect. And then what do you do with that? So Christian perfection in the history of the church has not been a very helpful thing. But it's led to a second problem. And the second problem we have when we think about obedience practically in our lives, it's the problem that we've called passivism. P-A-S-S-I-V-I-S-M. Passivism. Um, And there's a slogan that we often use in the church to describe it. Does anybody know what that slogan is that goes with passivism? Passivism means you're passive. That means you're not the one that's doing so what's the slogan that we use in the church to describe passivism? Anybody know it? What? Nope. That's uh, just Christianity, turning the other cheek. But there's a slogan that we use to describe passivism. That was non-retaliation. That was the slogan of non-retaliation, turn the other cheek. But what's the slogan of passivism? I know you've heard it, and when I say it, you're going to go, oh, duh. But um, anybody know it? Yes, thank you. Did you read my notes? No, you, you got, he got that on his own because I didn't send him my notes. Um, I sent you my outline, but not my notes. So let go and let God. How many of you have heard that? Raise your hand. Let go and let God. Well, when you let go and let God, that means that you ain't doing nothing. And the Bible does not present Christianity as you doing nothing. It presents it as by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, you believing and you doing And that's completely different from, I'm going to sit back and do nothing, and Jesus is going to do everything. I know that we idolize saints like Hudson Taylor, and Lord knows I've certainly learned from that man's life. I've read his all the biographies I could get my hands on of Hudson Taylor, and I've been challenged by his faith, and it has done an awful lot for me. But there's one story that I think that that is often told about Hudson Taylor where, where we have to be careful, but we have to learn from it as well. And I'll, talk, and I'll share it with you, and then we'll talk about how it relates to what we're talking about. Hudson Taylor, on, on one occasion, was criticized by another missionary because Hudson Taylor lived by a maxim that goes like this. You move God... Um, wait a minute. Move God uh, through prayer... Um, hang, hang on a second... I'm having a brain malfunction. Um, the, the point of his, of his sermon, of his um, maxim, was that um, you move God by faith through prayer alone. It's, you don't ask people. And so this whole idea of by prayer alone characterized Hudson Taylor's life and his faith in what he did. So on one occasion, one of the other missionaries in Shanghai comes up to, to Hudson Taylor and says, you know, Hudson, you're just a mess. You live... 
from hand to mouth. Meaning that he didn't live with a lot uh, of reserve. He didn't live with a lot in his bank account. He lived from hand to mouth. And so Hudson Taylor looks up from the table at this missionary who's standing there looking at him. And he says, you're absolutely right. I do live from hand to mouth, from God's hand to my mouth. And so by his trust and by his prayer and by his faith, he actually believed that God was doing something. But my point is this. Even the act of prayer is something that we do. So he was not completely passive, but people have misunderstood Christianity to think that um, being a real Christian is just letting go and letting God and you do nothing. And I'm pointing out that even in that illustration of Hudson Taylor, that his prayer was something that he did. So these are some of the problems that we encounter when we encounter Jesus's challenge um, to live in obedience to his word. Jesus says in John 14, verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me shall be loved by my father and I will disclose myself to him. Obedience is part of the Christian life. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. There's no way to say that you love Jesus and then turn your nose at his commandments and say they don't matter in my life. And then there's the promise. He who loves me shall be Jesus will love you. The father will love you and you will have the promise of the intimate presence of God that comes through the promise of God bringing the Holy Spirit to us in our own lives to know how much God loves you. So my point in all this is, is that is that through obeying the Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we enter into a deeper sense of His presence and the reality of Christ in our lives. What is faith then? Faith equals acting on what God has said because you trust Him. So we think about faith as simply believing, like we believe a bunch of facts. Facts about a person lived, facts about what a person did in their lives. But faith is not simply Believing in that sense of knowing faith is acting. Faith is trusting. And that's the point that James makes in James, when he says that faith without works cannot save you because the faith that we have is a faith that acts. I remember when I was a child in Florida, uh, I would go out with my father on, on his boat. And I stopped going out with my father on the boats because so many times my dad had catamarans with sails and like he would go out and the wind was too much and sometimes the catamaran would go up on one hull and I never liked that. He thought it was fun. I didn't like it because I was the one who always fell in the water um, when that was happening. So I, I stopped going out with my father because I think the last time I went out with my father, he went out in the middle of a hurricane squall and the hulls of the boat separated. But I'm getting away from myself because my illustration is about trust in an earlier time in my life when I was about six years old, before my dad almost killed me three times on his catamaran, um, my father challenged me to trust him. When we were walking out on this boat dock, and the boat dock was high up out of the water, and then the, the boat was at the end of the boat dock, but then the, the boat was sort of out in the water. So my dad had to jump off the dock and get into the water and then get the boat so that then we could take the boat. Well, I was scared enough just to walk out on the dock. It was really tall and I'm afraid of heights and I was a little kid and I'm thinking, what's going to happen if I fall in the water? So here I am as a six-year-old scared to death walking out on, on the dock all the way to the end of the dock. 
And my dad's like, it's going to be okay. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. Just trust me. Just trust me. Okay, I finally walk out to the end of the dock. My father jumps in the water. And and I'm looking at him like, there ain't no way in creation I'm going to do that. And sure enough, my dad turns around. He holds up his arms and he says, trust me. Meaning, jump into my arms. Now, I was faced with a choice, okay? I sat there and I said, I don't want to do it, okay? I'm scared to death. I do not want to do this because I know what's going to happen. I'm going to jump. My dad's going to move or something like that. And boom, I'm going to fall face down in the water and the water's full of stingrays. And I don't like stingrays. My dad got stung twice. Not on that day, but on another time. But that's another story. Um, So what did I do? Here's my father who loves me holding up his arms and saying, trust me and jump. Take the leap of faith. What did I do? What do you think I did? Did I stay up on the dock or did I jump? How many of you think I stayed? Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Put your hands up. How many of you think I jumped? Raise your hand. Okay, you're right. I jumped. Um, I don't know how I did it to this day. I don't know how I did it. But I jumped and my father caught me. And then he picked me up. My feet never touched the water. And he put me in the boat. And on that day, thank you, Jesus, the catamaran stayed with both holes in the water. Nothing happened to me. Don't you see, brothers and sisters, that's what trust is in your Christian life. The Heavenly Father is holding up His arms of love to you. And He says, you want to see my love? See how I've done everything that you need in order to experience a great relationship with me because I've even sent my Son to die for your sins. And take that leap of faith. Don't, don't just think that faith is hearing something. Faith is acting on it. And that's what Jesus is showing us in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that what faith e- equals is leaping out. Trusting Him so that we do it and we respond to Him. I want to talk about how some of you are going to respond to the words of Christ. I know what's going on in some of your minds. And I know that just as when Jesus preached, the soil, uh, the word fell upon different soils and people had different responses. There's a lot of you here today who have different responses. Some of you are paying attention. Others of you are talking to your neighbor um, because you're bored. Some of you are looking at your cell phones. You might be looking at the passage or you might be looking at your Facebook. I can see everything, all right? I may be blind, but I see you. And I know that even though I see your external actions, that inside your heart of hearts, you've got differing responses to the words of Christ when he says, trust me, hear what I'm saying, and act on it. And let me tell you what those responses are. Response number one. Some of you are listening. You're going to hear and ignore like me with my mother when she called me to dinner and I wanted to play the trumpet. You're distracted with something else and you're ignoring Jesus. Second response. Some of you are going to hear and you're going to disagree. You're going to say, whoa, 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 whoa. I I disagree with that. I don't want to turn the other cheek. I don't think that's right. I don't think we should love our enemies. I think we should kill them. They're trying to kill us. Okay. I even confess, well, I'm not going to say that. Um, Let me simply say that sometimes I feel that way, okay? That I shouldn't love my enemies. I ought to retaliate against them. So you're going to hear and you're going to disagree. You're going to come up with reasons why it is that why what you think is better than what Jesus said. And you're simply going to disagree, okay? The third response of some of you who are sitting out here today. You hear it. You accept it. Some of you are saying, preach it, brother. Preach it, pastor. And you know what you're going to do after you hear, hear the word preach and you go preach it, brother, and you say you accept it. You know what you're going to do? You're going to leave here and you're not going to do what the word says. 
You hear, you say you accept it, but then you don't do it. And what do we call those kinds of people? Hypocrites. And some of you are going to do exactly that response. But then there are going to be others of you. And I pray that this is the majority of our congregation and the majority of those of you who hear Christ's words today. You're going to hear what Jesus says and you're going to obey it. Not because you have the power to do it on your own, but because he lives inside your heart. And you're going to know that the obedience that he's talking about is the obedience that comes because you are a Christian. Not the obedience that you try to do hard that makes you a Christian. What does Jesus say? What has he told us in this passage? I'm going to give you the bird's eye view. He's begun this passage and what he's telling us to act on, what he's telling us to do today is this. He's saying, be poor in spirit, don't be proud. The distinguishing mark of the political age that we live in today is pride. Look at the snarky way that people act and talk to each other on Facebook. Turn on the TV and watch CNN and Fox News and all the other um, news stations out there and see how people interrupt one another because they think that their idea is more important than listening to the other person who's talking. And Jesus says, I want you to be poor in spirit and humble rather than haughty. Look at what Jesus says when he says you need to put relationships ahead of your worship. So much so that when you hear that Um, When you hear the gospel and you want to give your offering, you want to come to the communion table today, he says, don't even come, don't even worship, don't even give your offering, don't even take communion if you're not reconciled with your brother. And he puts relationship ahead of religious service and obligation. Jesus says in this sermon, he says, don't just not commit adultery. Don't look at someone to lust after them in your heart. Jesus says, don't. Just don't murder people. Don't even have anger in your heart. Don't store up your treasures on earth. Don't pray or give alms and want everybody else to see it. He's he's telling us throughout this sermon the things that he wants us to do. He says, go out, look at the birds, see that the Father cares for them. Look at the flowers, see how they grow and how beautifully they're clothed and stop worrying about your daily necessities. This is what Christ has challenged us to do in the sermon, to treat others the way you want to be treated and to love your enemies just as Christ loved us. And so as we review all the things that Jesus wants us to do, we cannot say, Lord, we can't do it. We won't do it. It's impossible. We have to say, Lord, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and then dare to take up the challenge of living this passage because if you don't notice what Jesus says there is two responses there's not just the the response that I focused on today the response of obedience where the people hear the word of God and act upon it there is the other response there's the response of those who hear and they do not act upon it and you know how Jesus describes them Verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Like all those people in Puerto Rico that built their shacks and their houses too close to the beach. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. Jesus is talking about success and failure in your life. And it's all tied to one thing. 
how you hear and how you respond to the word of God. Notice how this passage ends. It's an, it's an amazing passage. And, and I love how it ends because if you could just imagine it. During that day, you heard the scribes telling you, talking about the scripture and what the, what the law of God meant. But then Christ stands up, says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And at the end of this long sermon that challenges us to do things that we actually think are impossible in our heart of hearts. Here's what we hear in verse 28. The result of the sermon was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is how we ought to respond. This is where we ought to end up. We ought to be amazed. Amazed at this man who claims authority, who has the authority, and who dares to challenge us to live our life in that way. Where are you today? What foundation is your life built upon? How have you heard the Word of God today and for the last five months? The challenge that you have before you today is to hear, to act. To hear and to believe, to hear and to obey, and to hear and to turn to Christ, who himself is the fulfillment of the law. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done all that you've asked us to do. And that as we turn to trust you today, we thank you that it's not about us, it's about you, but it's about you living inside of us. So that even the crazy, difficult and impossible things you call us to do, there are things that we can do, we love to do and we want to do because we see what you have done and what you've made possible for us. Lord, deliver us from these poor responses of unbelief, ignorance, apathy, hardness of heart, and pure, plain stupidity and foolishness of listening to what you say and then ignoring it and not doing it. And allow us to be the people who live as Christian disciples, who make a difference in this world, and who shine as lights amidst all the darkness that there is out there. Lord, make us the disciples who shine as lights of the world and who become as the salt of the earth. And so we pray in your name. Amen.